Hey everybody, good morning. It's good to be with you together in God's house. My name is Chris, uh, and I'm just really thankful uh, to be here today. And I just want to echo what Brad said about uh, the marriage course. It's um, the marriage book is the book that that course is built on. And uh, I, I think it's actually probably the, the best book for uh, people that I've come across because it's super practical. And uh, so if you want to do a little foretaste, you can just purchase the, the marriage book on, online on Amazon. If you're um, in a marriage, thinking about marriage, wondering what a marriage might look like if you were to be in a marriage, uh, that's a good one. Uh, it's super, super, super good. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 4. I really am looking forward to, uh, to sharing this. I, I think... Uh, the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, uh, if you've spent time in, in the Christian church, you've probably heard about this story. Uh, for me, about, uh, gosh, it's been maybe almost a month ago, I was in Charleston, so I wasn't here one Sunday, and I was tasked to, to preach on this text at one of our uh, sister churches, actually the church we're going to uh, go to Israel with in the fall. And since that time, I've been holding this as uh, kind of my my principal text for the season of Lent, this season of wilderness wandering that we're in. And so I'm going to read, and here's what I want you to do. I want, I want to invite you to um, imagine yourself as a fly on the edge of Jacob's well, experiencing this story, witnessing this interaction between Jesus and this woman. And I want to ask you to do something that maybe is uh, hard to do. I, I want to ask you, regardless of your gender, regardless of where you are, whether you're a very mature Christian or one that's not sure at all about whether you are a Christian, I want to invite you to identify with the woman at the well. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that we read when we read literature in general, but for sure the Bible, is that we sometimes want to identify with the person who's got it together because it helps us feel like we maybe have it together or you, you know you can want to identify with like you know a, a hero in a story and yet what i have discovered is that when reading the text identifying with the most needy person in the text actually puts us in a space where jesus can find us and i i believe that you today are meant to find your story in this woman's story uh, I believe there's truth here and there's healing here. There's medicine here for us. So with that in mind, let's, let's read the text. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritan. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. A woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? And then the woman left her jar and went back to the city, and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and try to hear Jesus. Father, we ask today for your help to engage in a story that um, is familiar to some of us and a story that I think gets at really personal and deep things. We pray that you would help us to be as open and present as we're able to be. God, we thank you, Jesus, for your, your conversation with this woman. We pray today that you would help us to find our life, our story in, in this story, in, in her story. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So before we get into this, I think we need to understand a little bit about uh, Samaria. So um, Samaria is in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel in, in 2 Kings, uh, this part of Israel was conquered by a foreign, outside, non-Jewish group. And this, the people in this northern part of the kingdom of Israel, back in that story in Second Kings, started to intermarry with the conquerors. And uh, Jews in the rest of Israel felt that they had capitulated. They felt that they had failed. Uh, they had become a kind of mixed or a diminished version of the people of God. And so because of that, significant tensions emerged between Jews and Samaritans. And that's really important to understand that backdrop in a story like this. The issues were so strong that if a good Jew, and Jesus was a good Jew, Jesus was a devout Jew and his disciples were devout, that it was expected that if a good Jew were going from point A to point B and Samaria was in the middle, that they would go around Samaria. Jews cared a great deal, and do still, Orthodox Jews care a great deal about purity. Uh, the, the purity commandments of the Old Testament regarding things like leprosy or fabrics and clothes, and for sure, fidelity to God matters so much. God called the Jews and said, be 
ye therefore separate, be holy. So the Jews took that very seriously. And because of that, and because many Jews, all the devout Jews, felt that the Samaritans had compromised, Samaria was a compromised place. It was a mixed place. It was a place that had lost its integrity, had lost its credibility. And that's actually really important for you and me to understand. So Jesus, rather than going around Samaria, he goes right into it and he stops. And that's really important. He did something that people didn't expect him to do. And I think that one of the problems that we have when we read our Bibles without some of that context clue, and that's, that's our job to tell you these things, is that we miss some of the real thrust and power. The main thing that we need to hold in this story is this. Jesus, rather than going around compromise to avoid it, goes right into the middle of it and he stops. It's almost as if he's looking for her. He's not aloof from compromise, people. And so not only does he not avoid a compromised people, not only does he go out of his way to get away from a compromised people, a, a diminished people, a mixed people, a people lacking something, a people honestly who had taken heritage. I mean, Jacob's well, Jacob and Joseph, this story is like at the heart of Judaism. And Jews despised Samaritans because they, they saw that the Samaritans had lost the heritage. They had, they, this was like Jacob's place. This is Jacob's well where he watered his flocks, where the story of Israel grew out of the seed of this. And they were like, you ruined it. That's what the Jews felt of the Samaritans. And not only does Jesus not avoid a compromised people, in this story, he does not avoid. He actually pursues a compromised person. And if you live long enough, you will be compromised. Every one of us in this room, in one way or another, we're compromised. We, we feel like damaged goods. All of us do, if we're honest. So this is a story about what Jesus does when people are compromised. This is a story about the instinct of God toward you and me and us in our mixture. It's really important for us to understand that before we get into the text. Number one, Jesus converses with this woman as she sits beside Jacob's well. The text tells us that he reaches Jacob's well at noon, and that's really important in the middle of the day. The text also says that Jesus was tired, which I just really appreciate. Um, you know, some of you have grown up in kind of like Christian circles that said, like, don't be a wimp, you know. Um, I remember hearing a famous uh, televangelist who um, ironically dropped dead of a heart attack uh, in his 60s once say that to admit that you were tired is to be a, a weakling and, you know, um, that's just nonsense. Jesus was tired. And I'm so thankful for little details like that in the Bible. Like reminds us that it's okay to be tired. Jesus was tired. And he approaches and sits down by the well. And then a woman approaches him. And the passage tells us she's a Samaritan woman. And so there are two things happening in this exchange. Number one, she's a woman. And number two, she's a Samaritan. Both of those equal off limits for a Jewish man. 
Uh, again, Jews cared a great deal about holiness, about boundary, about purity. And so to engage with a woman by yourself was risky. To engage with a Samaritan woman would have been a non-starter. And yet here Jesus is with this woman. She's alone at the well in the middle of the day. Now here's something you need to know about Israel, about uh, Palestine, about the, the Middle East. Um, even today, in small oasis towns where there's a well in the middle of a small village in the middle of the desert, women gather together, uh, typically, even now, to go get water in the morning and in the late afternoon. They never go in the middle of the day because it's hot. Uh, well time is social time. It would have been back then, and it is today in many parts of the world. This is where women would cultivate friendships. This is where they would catch up on family. They would talk about what's going on in life with their kids, all that stuff. And yet it's telling for us that this woman approaches in the middle of the day. This gives us the first very clear clue that she's a social outcast, that she is an outsider, that she has a reputation that has induced shame into her story. So she goes in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to run into people. She avoids the crowd because the crowd represents her own failure. Probably the crowd would represent a sense of shame, like a sense of I'm not welcome here, so I'm going to work around it. This would be like falling out with friends and going to the gym at a time when you know they wouldn't be there. Only worse. So she ends up in the middle of the day at a place where she'd never go. And this tells us that this woman has lost credibility, that she's infamous. And I want to say a couple of things about her. Um, we tend to, and some of you have probably grown up in parts of the church that just told us that this woman was like a sexually immoral or like to use a phrase that I, I hate, that she was a loose woman. And that may have been true. Or she could have been and most likely was sexually exploited in a culture where women had no power. And to survive, she had to go from woman, man to man to man and was being used up by men and discarded. A woman could be sexually loose and immoral in the ancient world. Of course, that's human. Sin is sin, right? And yet the power structures of the day were such that a woman could not willy-nilly just decide to start divorcing people. That, that power belonged uh, solely with men in the ancient world. And so for whatever reason, she had just been passed around. What we know is that her life is not working for her, that she's broken and that she's been gossiped about and she's been shamed. That's what we know. The second thing we see in this text is Jesus asks her for a drink of water. She is caught off guard by this question because Jesus is initiating with her. Remember, he had intentionally entered into a compromised place, and now he is engaging intentionally with a compromised individual. He initiates a conversation. She does not understand what in the world is going on. She says to him, you're speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? So she immediately pushes back on him. And then Jesus turns the question uh, to his choosing by saying something else to her. So here he's on fully the engaged side of the conversation. He says, you should ask me for water. You should ask me for living water. He's suggesting that he's able to give her something that would truly satisfy her. I would, I would submit to you that this whole exchange is about satisfaction. It's about abundance versus scarcity. It's about the things we do to try to satisfy or to be safe or secure and the thing that God says he can give us that meets our need. Jesus basically says to her, I can give you something that would be alive, that would truly satisfy you. 
He's paying attention to her heart posture. He's basically deciding whether or not she's curious, whether the door is open. He is um, gauging. He's kind of probing in the conversation to see what she will do. And she asks him a question, well, where do you get this living water? So what she says basically is, I'm curious. And then she immediately backtracks. She starts to cover her tracks. She starts to move back into a safer place because she's made herself vulnerable and now she's covering her tracks. She's sort of like saying, oh no, I don't want to really get into a real conversation with this guy because I don't want to disclose what's really going on in my life. At this point, she has no idea that Jesus already knows. And we do this all the time. I do this all the time. It's like a step of vulnerability and then you back up into safety where you just sort of want to talk about ideas versus like what's really going on in your heart. And that's exactly what she's doing. This is a really human conversation between Jesus and this woman. And as she begins to cover her tracks, Jesus speaks to her of a gushing fountain or a gushing fountain, depending on where you're from. I prefer gushing. He tells this woman that she could have access to a spring that would bubble up inside of her forever. And this is like Jesus's calling card. This is the same thing he says at the miracle of the turning of the water into wine, right? I can take your scarcity and turn it into something more. This is what he says at the feeding of the 5,000. I can take your not enough and I can make it more than enough. Well, right now he's saying, this isn't getting the job done you could have access to more than enough, to gushing enough, to bubbling fountains that would spew more than enough. And she has no idea what in the world he's talking about because she is living on the edge. She knows scarcity. She knows what it's like to be compromised. She knows what it's like to be marginalized. She knows what it's like to be stigmatized. She knows what it's like to feel alone, to feel shame, even if the shame was not something she did. Because I, I, I'm not sure. The, the gift is you don't have to be sure what a person did in order to receive a story like this. Whether she was sexually immoral in the sense of her instinct or whether she was exploited by people, y'all, it doesn't really matter. Jesus would come and say the exact same thing to her. So whether you've got a mark on you and your life and you feel shame on you in your life because you did bad things from a broken and dark instinct or whether just some really awful stuff has happened to you, it doesn't matter in the sense that Jesus would come to you and say the same thing. Our pain matters to God. The things done to us matter to God. Our sin, the things we do that are uh, that, that, that are dark and unsatisfactory, those things matter to God. But what he says to us regardless is, is the same thing. Jesus comes to us in our scarcity and he says, I got something to say to you. There's more for you than you could imagine. The, the trick is, can we believe that in the middle of a life that is really hard, disappointing, and even fear-inducing, shame-inducing? Jesus speaks to her about abundance. And um, I, I think she probably was doing what, what we all do. She was probably living at a season in her life where she was like, we, she'd wake up in the morning and she would be thinking, if everything goes according to plan today, I'll make it through the day. Like if I can just like avoid the crowd in the morning, get to the well on time, 
not have weird and painful, humiliating conversations, figure out how to take care of my needs, figure out how to deal with this guy that I'm with. Like I'll, I'll make it through the day. But you know, when you when your sequencing is really tight, things never go according to plan. You never just make it through the day. She was probably living on the razor's edge in so many ways. And you too are probably living on the razor's edge. A lot of us would describe our lives in some term other than abundance. Like we feel like there's just not enough. I don't have enough hope. I don't have enough love. I don't have enough resources. I don't, I don't have enough confidence. I don't have enough energy. All the not enoughs. Like this woman's living in all of that. She's a compromised person. And Jesus is looking at her and he's saying, I would love to meet that need from you. I would love to meet your need. And that leads us to the fourth thing. He invites this woman to reflect on how she's been attempting to meet her needs. Um, John Ortberg said in Soul Keeping, his wonderful book, It is the Nature of the Soul to Need. Uh, I want you to hear that Jesus doesn't uh, invalidate the need. He just says, how are you trying to meet your needs and how's it working for you? And the way that we know that he doesn't shame her is that she, at the end of this story, says to all the people who had shamed her, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. If he had shamed her, do you think she would have said that? Come and see a man who told me every... What, there was something healing in what Jesus was doing with her. He was inviting her to see, I've been looking to meet my needs. And y'all, it's never about the sex. It's never about the drugs. It's never about the alcohol. It's never about the greed. It's never about, it, it, those are broken, finite, temporal, and painful, and real consequence-induced things we do to try to meet a need to find satisfaction in our souls. And I just want to say to you, Jesus doesn't tell the woman to kill her need. He just wants her to answer that, that what she's been doing to meet the need is hurt her versus heal her. Some of you have grown up in corners of Christian religion that have just told you to squash your needs, squash your desire. And the reason for that makes sense because most of the painful stuff we do, we do in response to trying to meet real needs and real desires because we live in a fallen world and we're finite and we're fragile and we go down all these dead end roads that do hurt us. Sin hurts us, y'all. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, that sin puts space between us and God. Those, that is real. And yet when Jesus looks at this woman's sin, her response gives us an indication. Jesus' tone of speech gives us an indication that he looks at your scarcity and he says, I've got abundance for you. He doesn't say stop needing that. Stop, stop needing to have your need met. Stop needing to be secure. Stop needing that. He doesn't say that. He didn't say it to her, and he doesn't say it to you. He just says, you've been looking down some dead-end roads that have hurt you. How's that working for you? I've got something else. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he said to her. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the one sermon Jesus came to preach over and over and over again. I've got more for you than you could ever imagine. But I do think there's a fundamental invitation for us, 
as we sit with a text like this, as we try to find our story in this woman's story, to, to answer the question, where have I been walking down dead-end roads in order to try to feel better? Lent is a time for us to hold the places in us and the places in our story where we're vulnerable and we're fragile and places that lead us to death. And he says, think about how you're meeting your needs, how you're attempting to find satisfaction. And the thing that's so interesting about the heart of Jesus in this space is that all he wants from this woman is access. She has to open up. And as he gets really close, she tries to redirect the conversation. And I see that, you know, and this is amazing. So if you spend enough time in church, you'll, you'll learn that there are times when it gets really real and you just then want to talk about theology. And that's exactly what happens to her. She's like, let's talk about geography and theology and the differences between Samaritans and Jews. So what's happening here is Jesus is like pressing very uncomfortably close to the places in her life that feel the most vulnerable and broken. And she backtracks and she's like, let's just talk about theology. Like we do this all the time. You may not be interested in theology, but it is something else for you. I know what it, I know what it is for me. And she wants to say, well, you, you, you know, we're into the mountain and you're into Jerusalem. Jesus just hangs in there with her. He's, he's touching her pain. He's, he's touching the places that feel dead. He's touching where her desire that has been unmet has led her to shame and isolation and hurt. He's touching the mark that she bears. And then the last thing that happens is he speaks to her about the Holy Spirit. She's like the mountain, Jerusalem, and he just says there's going to come a day where it's just going to be about the Spirit. Where the mountain and Jerusalem, there's not going to matter. They're not going to be the thing that we're, we're divided over. She's like, it's going to be about Spirit and truth. And I just love the fact that in this moment, Jesus is quite literally pointing her to a better way. The Holy Spirit, I think, is who we need to move through shame and find a better way. The abundance that Jesus has, um, what Jesus is inviting her to do is to move forward through it all and find that there is a way forward for her. And I just want to say to you, there's a way forward for you too. And her response at the end is just so telling. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. So here's what I want to ask you to think about. We're going to spend probably two minutes in silent contemplation before we come to communion. And I, I just want us to ask this, this question. How have you been looking to have your needs met? Where have you been going? And this is how we actually find our story and her story. And I want you to know that whatever it is that you name here, 
Jesus would say, I have something better for you. So let's spend some moments in quiet, and then we will come to this communion table. But let's ask this question, and it's going to take more than two minutes to answer this question. So maybe you take a picture and you journal this week. It might be a very good Lenten practice to do some writing and thinking about where you turn to have your needs met. So let's be still, and then we'll come together for communion.